Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast brought to you in association with Sportful. I am your host, Joe Robinson. Joining me as ever, Mr. James Spender. Hello, Joseph. I'm Mr. James Spender. Excellent. And on today's show, the man who was the eyes of the professional peloton for over four decades leading professional cycling photographer, Mr. Graham Watson. If you can think of an iconic cycling photo since the 1970s, the chances are it was Mr. Watson who took it. But before then, James and I are going to rattle through some of the things that we're liking and disliking in the world of cycling over the last fortnight. James, good to see you again. Actually, we saw each other last week, listeners. Uh, we had a, one of our first meetups since COVID restrictions relaxed. So we actually got to see each other in the flesh, didn't we, James? Yes, we did. Um, that was interesting, wasn't it? How we've changed. Yes. How we've changed. The beard that you're now sporting is is vast. I'm not sure how you're managing to cope with that or keep bees from nesting in there. Lots of oil. Lots of oil. Yeah, lots of olive oil. It's, uh, lots of olive oil because, uh, James, I know you're a fan of this and listeners, if you're Tesco shoppers... Uh, more specifically, Tesco club card holders. Oh, uh, yes. Filippo Berrio one litre bottles of olive oil are on club card. They are. Yep. Now, that's something we're both sharing, a like we're both sharing. But, James, I want to know something that you're specifically liking. Well, uh, this might surprise you, Joe, because as you, as you and I know, I'm actually 36, not 66. But I've been really enjoying small churches. Okay. Yeah. And let me tell you why. Basically, cycling around... There's just loads of small churches in the countryside, and they're That's really, true. really great places to stop. So a friend of mine on a ride, uh, she introduced me to one specific small church in Essex called St Andrews, uh, which is in Greenstead in Essex. And guess how old St Andrews is? Oh, four hundred years old. Oh, <laughs> a mere infant of a church. Uh, nearly twelve hundred years old. It dates back okay, to. Okay. Wow. Um, first, uh, first sightings of the church, probably through binoculars from a nearby hillock, was uh, eight forty-five. That's incredible. Eight forty-five. That's not. That's not the time in the morning. That's that's a year. So we can rule out the chances that that church was named after Andrew Ridgely, one half of Wham. We can rule that out, um, and also after Prince Andrew, uh, who you know that ignominiously rest his soul. Yeah, um, but the the thing I really liked about it um, was it's got a little hole in the side of the wall called a leper's squint. Okay, and explain to me what a leper's squint is. Well, a lot of people had leprosy in the old days, didn't they, which was unfortunate. Um, Can I guess, they weren't allowed to attend church services, so therefore would attend by looking through the slight hole in the wall? They would, they absolutely would. They look through and they would listen and they they would get a blessing from one of the monks who'd be in the church in the safety under God's watchful gaze, and the lepers lepers were queue up by the lepers' squint, which is an addition to a lot of churches I've since discovered. In that's uh, my thirty-five grand's worth of debt in history. Yeah, from university coming into and also <laughs> coming into play there. Your understanding of common words in the English language. Congratulations <laughs> and the construction thereof. And there's another one, Colburn or Colbone, Colbone in uh, on the edge of Exmoor, which also has a leper's squint, which I went to once, and that was a tiniest church. That so that's the tiniest church in the UK. Seats just 33 people. And uh, something you don't like, James? Something I don't like. Well, it's more something I wish someone could invent, and it's called a time machine. Because I don't like it when you have something really good to say after the after the event. Yes, you think of a good zinger, and it's already, the time's passed. 
you think of a humdinger or a zinger, and a lot of the time to me, it does rather happen when I'm on my bicycle and something annoying happens, and I just want to come back to that person with something that's really going to you know, really correct them and also just indulge my horrible self-righteousness tendencies. Yeah. So the other day, I'm at a crossing. It's on a, um, a narrow cycle path. There's a cyclist coming towards us, people crossing. There's a cyclist behind me who I've just overtaken because you know I was going faster than him or he was going wanted to go slower than me, whatever. So anyway, I wait at the crossing. Cyclist I've overtaken comes singing past through the people on the crossing, through the cyclists on the other side of the road and past me. And I'm just like, mate. And he turns around. He's like, what? And I'm like, have some more space. <laughs> and he just looked at me like, have some more space? What does that mean? I don't him, understand. Mate. Yeah, and and then I did it the other day with somebody who like really took umbrage of me on a contraflow, didn't realise it was a contraflow, stood in my way and was just like effing and blinding. And, and I knew this was happening. I was like, I'm not going to swear back. I'm going to take, we're going to take the moral high ground. So as I approached him, he was going, yeah. And I was like, oi mate, love life. <laughs> just shouted love life in his face. And I don't know what that means. I was like, I'm going to say something really positive to him to change his attitude. So I just shouted love life at him. Um, so I wish that I had a time machine to go back and say something different to those people. In, in a similar vein with that, you know, I, I often, if I think of quite a witty line or a witty phrase out on the bike, I'll stop and record it or write it down <laughs> on my phone to then use it in an article in the future. <laughs> Can you give us any examples? I, I, um, I, 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 there was a line I used the other day in a web article on cyclist.co.uk, you should all know it well. Where I, I I did I I made a good wit about Shakespeare, because uh, the Giro was in Verona and and there's yeah there's a few times where I've just stopped and I've been like I don't know what it will be in relation to but that'd be a really good line, and I'll, I'll jot it down uh, or record it and there's been a few times like I'm I'm practically like James Joyce when out on the bike I'm writing prose in my head like it's nobody's business and then yeah. I get in front of a laptop and I, I can't string two sentences together or in front of a microphone sometimes exactly oh, oh sorry yeah. that was cutting I thought of a good one the other day uh it's like shooting water pistols at a rainbow don't really know how to use it yeah that's nice I'm sure we can shoot on that into a feature somewhere in the future anyway moving swiftly on um get away from this talk of churches and time machines um that'd be cool wouldn't it get a time machine go back to that church in 845 look at the lepers through the hole yeah it would do Anyway, what's, um, what, what have you been enjoying, my friend? Oh, for me, it's been a little plug for cyclist.co.uk yet again. It's been the daily image galleries that we've been provided by the excellent Mr. Chris Auld. Uh, he's yep. at the Giro d'Italia. Uh, he's one of the few that have been allowed into the bubble of the free, free week Grand Tour in Italy, the most beautiful of all of the races. And uh, he's been taking some absolutely lovely images around Italy, despite it being absolutely horrific weather all the, the entire time. It's basically yeah. rained every single day. Yeah. Uh, we're recording this the day after the Passo Giao stage, when they had to cut out the Passo Fidia and the Passo Podoi, uh, because of it being slightly cold at the top. But there were some amazing snow images from the top of the Zhao, uh, which was made even better by the fact that television um, coverage couldn't be provided due to there being no helicopter or relaying airplane on that day because of the bad weather. Yeah, so so we all went through watching the day on Eurosport or GCN, didn't see any live images, 
But then at the end of the day, I got through, you know, a wee transfer from Mr. Rule, who'd been standing, freezing his nuts off at the top of the Zhao, and got some incredible images. So check them out. They're on cyclist.co.uk. Uh, you'll see them all there. Um, I try and write something funny about each day as well. Uh, try and write, write one of those witticisms that you come up with when you're out peddling your bike being James Joyce. Exactly. Uh, cutting, there we go, uh, like a hot knife through Kerry Gold was one I used the other day. Uh, Kerry Gold, not met her. No, Kerry Gold's the best butt you can get. Um, moving on to something I don't like at the moment, James, and you might be able to help me with this, is creaking shoes on the bike. I can tell you how to fix that. Can you please solve it to me? Because I've got a set of shoes that I really enjoy. They're very comfortable. I went out in the rain the other day, and after they've been, after they got a bit, they got quite wet. Um, I even lost a headphone. It rained so hard. It rained the headphone out of my ear, and I lost it into the deluge of water going down the road. Goodness me. Since that day, my shoe's been very squeaky. Well, I've got um, I've got easy easy fix for you. We mentioned it at the top of the show there. Um, olive oil. Okay. Just uh, rub a bunch of olive oil all over it. That'll sort sort the squeaks out. Where do I apply it to? Around the cleat? It will wear off, sadly. Most likely, your situation is caused by the cleat pedal interface. What pedals are you running? You're, you're a Shimano man, aren't you? I'm a Shimano boy. Yeah, so sometimes the rubber on the little the little rubber bumpers on the Shimano pedals, uh, same with look, they get a little bit crispy, a little bit kind of perish, and they start squeaking against the metal platform of the pedal itself, which you can rectify by going into a cafe in France and taking a little sachet of olive oil, which solves all, you know, little sachets of olive oil, we've discussed this before, absolute lifesavers. It will stop the squeak. Uh, will it stop the squeak forever? Possibly yes, possibly no. But maybe... It's coming from the actual shoe itself, in which case I can only suggest that you soak a sock in olive oil before putting the shoe on, which will both help the shoe slide on more naturally and will hopefully permeate the area of the squeak as you ride and leave your feet ready to have bread dipped on them. Okay, and as you said, I need to go to France for a session of oil, I'll just book the next Eurostar. And Bob's my uncle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on that note, uh, let's just get onto the podcast because it's really good with Graham Watson. Yeah. Legendary photographer. You'll have known his stuff from stuff like Cycling Weekly, having sort of shot for them for four decades. And the man's just full of stories, isn't he, James? He is. He is packed to the Sally Gunnels with stories. So when, when did you um, move out to New Zealand? Uh, full time. Uh, well, let's put this way: I left London in March of 2015. Oh wow! So it's a long time. And then spent um, a few months on the road doing the work, and then shifted everything to New Zealand and came back to Europe for 2016. Mm-hmm. And then that was it. Did you always sort of feel that that was going to be where you would end up? Did you have designs on New Zealand, or did you just sort of get stopped there and then decide to stay there? Uh, well, it's, it's very easy. I, I met my future wife in London. Mm-hmm. in 2001 uh, since so she was a Kiwi uh, living and working in London and uh, first thing we did was go to New Zealand and once I saw that in 2002 I think it was um, you know you just it just captivates you if you've got a, if you've got a favorite country in the world that's not your own country then mm. New Zealand was it and uh, the years went by we bought a house down here rented it out and then we eventually got married here in 2013. And in hindsight, it was a quite a clever, uh, uh, steady progress to you know, retiring down here. But um, it was never really, it was never planned as such. It just, you know, I suddenly discovered um, without any sort of planning, what a great place to retire to. You know, twenty thousand kilometres from any major bike race, and um, <laughs> no, literally, no, literally, I couldn't. Uh, I can't imagine if I stopped in living in England and just, you know, just the Channel 
was stopping me going to see another bike race, but uh, this is a great way of doing it. Are you north or south islands? Uh, we're south island on the very top 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 of the north coast. Okay, a place called Nelson, named oh, after right. Nelson. So that kind of that capped off in 2015-16. I think the last thing I'm aware that you shot uh, in a kind of like I am stood on the circuit capacity was the 2016 um, Olympics. Is that right? Well, the last thing I did was actually the Tour de Nanda in January of 2017 because it's uh, it's a three-hour flight away, and I had a contract with them since since the race began in 1999. So I didn't want to. Um, yeah, just kind of walk away from it without going there one last time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, my, it's my it's my nearest local race now. So um, <laughs> and then, but before that, we did uh, whatever the European season is until the Tour of Lombardy in October. Right, and then there was that what was the Abu Dhabi Tour in uh, October in, in Abu Dhabi, would you believe? And then that was it. And the Worlds that year were in uh, in Qatar, so I did the Worlds in Qatar, yes. and, then, and then Tour of, Tour of Abu Dhabi. And then we just took off to Auckland and onto Nelson and that was it. That's quite helpful because it's all going that direction that you need to go as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're working your way back to New Zealand quite nicely there. I love that. There's, there's not that many people that can say the Tour of Down Under is their local race. Uh, that's true. It's true. Um, but they're nice people. And they. Uh, it was a race we thought uh, would last two or three years. Back in 1999 it began and uh, it went on and on and on and grew and grew and grew and you know, it's coming. It's I think it's done twenty one years now. Even though this year didn't happen, mm. and it's coming mm. close to the twenty five years of the Amstel Gold Race uh, when I first began. So the Amstel Gold is is comparatively a new, still a new world world tour, whatever you want to call it, pro tour race. Mm. Um, that's obviously gone on probably about forty years now. But uh, the Tour de Under is up to about twenty one years, twenty two years. Yeah. So it's no longer a new race, but it's. Uh, it feels like it is. So that segues quite nicely uh, into another question, which is, what was your first race? My first race, uh, I saw the tour end in Paris in 1977. but So that was literally my first race, Tour de France 1977. But um, I, I kind of count things from the late 70s onwards when I was doing two or three weeks on, on the Tour de France. Mm. Um, definitely the tour was the first event, definitely was it. Led me to see Paris-Roubaix in... 1980, um, Tour Flanders in 1981, um, a whole batch of races in 83, and then the Vuelta in 1985, and the Giro in 1986. So that's the basic uh, kind of uh, the way it snowballed. Yeah. Just do, do, doing more and more. And um, obviously, when I started, um, you yeah, know, the Sean Kellys and Robin Millers in the world were doing very well for themselves. And um, Doing more and more races and more magazines started up, um, uh, which which really helped me. Obviously, get, get some exposure and get some money in, and kept me travelling on the road and doing more races. And it just kept growing, growing, growing. So, what was that first picture that got published, and how old were you? Uh, the first picture is, is one of Eddie Merckx I took in that 1977 Tour de France. Um, he was going up. They, they do the same circuit they do now up and up and around the Champs Elysees, and I've got this one shot of him when he was trying to bridge across to an escape and um, it's an old story but it's it, Cycling Weekly had a, uh, a a yearly competition in those days for amateur photographers so I put it into the competition and it won and that kind of set me on my way and I I think I was 22 years old then oh wow and and had you kind of gone to Paris 
with the express intention of I'm going to capture this race and this is going to kickstart, you know, this is going to be what I'm maybe going to submit to magazines or to some newspapers? Or were you there as a, just a tourist with a camera that happened to take a great picture? I think all of that. I mean, I, I was, <laughs> by the time I got to Paris in 1977, I've been a professional photographer, uh, what they used to call society photographers, which is like working in a studio or going to the homes of some of the aristocratic people that um, you know were pretty prominent in those days back in the 70s. So I was already a fully-fledged photographer and I'd grown tired of it being in a studio all day. And I took up cycling to pay, because I couldn't afford the train fare in those days, so I bought a bike and cycled into the centre of London every day from South Croydon. And um, it got me into cycling and then I wanted to see the Tour de France and I'd, I heard of Eddie Merckx. Um, I remember vaguely seeing Tom Simpson's kind of uh, collapse on on the, on the BBC News in black and white in 1967. And so there was a kind of a switch in my head that kind of turned me towards cycling and away from other traditional sports. Mm-hmm. And um, so I went to Paris with a very open mind. I, I, I wanted to see the tour. I wanted to see Eddie Merckx. Um, and I just ca- I was captivated by the whole thing, the whole the trip seeing a massive capital city other than London and also seeing the millions of people that just flocked to see this Tour de France. And um, that, selling that one picture at the end of 77 was the, was the real, you know, literally a door opened and I went through it with, with everything I had. So did from that moment on when you took that picture of Max and it was published in the weekly, which in, you know, still massive magazine, but back then it was the only cycling magazine. Did they then go... Graham, can you do this for us more often, please? Um, so can you just start going to races and we'll start you know, giving you money? Uh, they didn't actually say it in those words. I mean, I, I, took, I took the bait without being... I almost wasn't offered the bait. I, was, I sort of like asked them to give me the bait to do it. Mm. And I think the editor back then was um, quite a kid. Well, they're all keen cyclists. I think it was a guy called Ken Evans who got replaced by a guy called Martin Ayres. And I think they realised they were onto something because back in then, in those days, um, there was no such thing as um, uh, internet. There was no way of getting pictures off anybody, not even the agencies in those days, uh, because it was all done in black and white film and then black and white prints. And I think Slide and Week would be lucky to get black and white pictures by the Thursday when they when they uh, published each week. And here was I, I was a guy who was happy to come and run back on a overnight on Sunday on a train or something and come back with some black and white film. Mm. And, uh, you know, it didn't happen overnight, but by, by mid-1978, uh, I was, you know, getting stuff in, in Cycling Weekly regularly and um, did a few domestic events because I couldn't afford to go to Europe very often. But then the, after the next Tour de France, which he now won, mm. it kind of became like a, an accepted thing that I was always be, I'll be going to all these weekend races in Europe and uh, happy to come back. Uh, didn't ask for too much money, didn't get much money, <laughs> and it just, but it just grew, it just grew. It, uh, it was a very rich period of my of my life and, and of English speaking cycling. I guess as well, back then in the se- uh, late seventies, early eighties, when you're starting out, it's very different to now in that you didn't need to get accreditation, um, as you would have known from the latter part of your career. To to even just be on the race was quite quite hard. Was it a case of just being able to pitch up? back then and in your own car and start taking pictures uh yes that was it <laughs> one of the probably the biggest attraction to me was that um as soon as i got into cycling in 1977 78 mm. of course i wanted to do all sports 
um, especially skiing, especially rugby, things I really liked and things that were very exciting for a photographer and also which were quite difficult to photograph. Uh, the problem was everything else except for cycling. You needed a press pass, you needed mm. to get into a stadium. And I, I had no idea, I had no clue how to do that other than going to get a job with a newspaper. And it was kind of a, it wasn't a closed shop, but it was very, um, freelancers back then weren't, they weren't really heard of. You, you worked for a newspaper or an agency and that was the only way into a, into a football stadium or to a rugby stadium or a, a cricket pitch. You know, you, you, where a cycling was just, uh, it was, and it still is, it's just a, a sport that takes place outside your door sometimes. Mm. And uh, it's a free show for everybody, free show for anybody watching, uh, anybody uh, taking pictures. Um, that's that was the that was the major attraction at all. Was it was just easily doable. Well, you say I don't know. You say easily doable, but it always occurs to me, having you know seen live cycling, how short a period of time you actually get with the riders, as it were, to observe them. They you wait all day, and it's gone in a blink of an eye. And you were saying just then that you'd be one of the people that would be happy to jump on a train on Sunday night and get those pictures back to London ASAP. Were there times where you thought you had a satchel full of great rolls of film and you got back to London and then it was just like, that just didn't work, I just didn't get the shot? Or did does that kind of thing not tend to happen? I don't, I, I'm always, yeah, I always wonder with photographers how much disappointment there is and unknown, especially back obviously in the in the day when you didn't have digital cameras to look back at the mo- in the moment at what you'd taken um or or was it literally a case of you take so many pictures there's gonna be something good just so long as you're there um again a bit of everything there i mean you 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 don't know you didn't know then until you got your your black and white film processed and black and white prints made of it what you'd actually got and so it was literally a case of coming back and developing a film in, in my house at night time and then i had a little cupboard under the stairs where i had a black and white um, enlarger. There's only when you actually um, put that photographic paper into a tray full of chemicals and you watch it literally just a, a, appears in front of you out of, out of nowhere. What was once a white piece of photographic paper suddenly become a picture of um, Sean Kelly climbing the Coppenberg or something. And so at that point when you know if you've got the picture and if it's, if it's in focus, if it's presentable to an editor. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, your instinct also, because I was trained as a as a, a society patrol or a portrait patrol, if you like, your instinct, you know, when you've taken the picture that, yes, I've got something. You get, you, there was always something to get excited about that, that perhaps, yeah, I did get that great shot of Sean Kelly on the Coppenberg. And, uh, but you still got the delay of uh, maybe nine hours before you actually see the finished product. Um, but equally, there were little times when it didn't work out. But people don't see those pictures. <laughs> on, on that on that note, then, when was at what moment or what photo when it sort of developed and you saw it come into focus? Did you of, of all the pictures you took for your career, you went, "Wow, that's that's the shot." Was there any that really like you're like, "Oh, now that there?" Because you've obviously it goes without saying that some of the most iconic images in the last forty years of the sport were taken by you, Graham. But was there one that when it came through developed you went, "Ah, oh, yeah, that's the ticket." Um, well, the one of Merce was quite stunning because it, because of who it was. Mm. I mean, technically, in hindsight, it was a it wasn't a rubbishy picture. It was just a very bog standard shot of him. But because it was Merce, it was in black and white, and it had been wet all day long, and his face has looked a little bit more kind of uh, intense than it, it would have done on a sunny day. Um, so that was one example of, of developing a print 
and thinking, wow, I've got it. I've got a picture of Eddie Merckx. Mm. Um, it's been, I can't, I can't, I couldn't list them, but there's been quite a few occasions like that when uh, there was the finish of the 1983 Tour of Lombardy, which doesn't sound much at the moment, but at the time, it, for me, it was like a, I think it's like a, not 2,000 kilometres to uh, Como, but it's quite a long way to drive. Mm. And I made a mess of the uh, 1982 World Championships in England because I didn't get a shot of Cerrone winning because not my fault, but I didn't get it. Mm. So I thought, right, I'm going off to Lombardy next weekend and I get a picture of Cerrone um, in, in the Tour of Lombardy and uh, I went all the way down there and actually that's when I got a picture of Cerrone winning on the shores of Lake Como in, in, in his rainbow jersey. Mm. And it was iconic because of who it was more than the actual subject of the, of, of the, you know, of, of the camera. And then, but then I went back the following year to, in 83 and I got this shot of the guys sprinting for the line to win. There was like Sean Kelly, Henny Kuyper, Andrew Van Der Poel, and one other at least, if not two. And they're, they're separated by just a couple of inches across the whole width mm. of the road. So the toll was nightmare. You don't, know who to, you, don't know which, who, you don't know where to put your focus. Um, so every, every now and again, I'd get a shot, which I was very really pleased with, but not every week. I mean, it's, uh, it just doesn't, doesn't work. And then, then you'd also every now and then get a shot, and this is just to do as much with luck that no one else got. And in my head is the 87 Tour of Flanders, when you were basically the only person who got a shot of Jesper Skibby poor Jesper Skibby sort of falling off his bike on the Koppenberg and then his sort of bike being run over by that BMW, the Commissaire's car. Um, so luck must have played a massive part throughout your career, being in the right place at the right time and just being able to get that right shot. It comes as part and parcel of the job, or it did back then, when when there wasn't autofocus, when there wasn't digital photography, you had to really get it get it right and hope you'd also got the, the best picture than anybody else got and um love plays a huge role in anything we do and um especially in photography but you as i say you make your luck by being there and at least trying to get the best shot and if, mm. if the best shot comes out of it then you've got a you know like a bonus uh, a bonus point for, for getting it right when you saw skibby getting run over did you think in your head did you compute that this is going to be this is in, a bit insane like this this doesn't happen every day and even now we're talking about it what 34 years on did you did you think that or did you just think oh that's just a racing instant incident onto the next climb no i knew it was special because uh, by, by 1987 i've seen the Coppenberg uh four or five times so i knew what, what i was seeing wasn't normal mm. and also i could tell the speed how slowly skibby was going he might even if he hadn't been run over by the car he probably wasn't going to make it to the top of the Coppenberg before the peloton got to him or before he fell over anyway. And he actually fell over because he couldn't stay yeah. upright anymore. He was just so tired. He'd been in an escape all day. And all this factored in when I was in this position on the Koppenberg. All my colleagues were further down the climb because it's steeper there and um, perhaps a bit more chance of, of, um, of spectacular stuff happening. But as it was, I, I stayed a bit higher and I saw Skibby coming up and I saw the race officials car behind him who realised that the peloton was going to catch him and they needed to get out of the way very quickly. And so in the matter of, you know, a, a, probably three seconds, all this happened. And and so Skibby fell over. The car was trying to get around him anyway and basically ran over him. And then, then it got a bit chaotic because fans jumped out and tried to carry Skib, uh, Skibby's bike up the climb for him while he got up. 
And then somehow, I think Eric Van Raden and Sean Kelly and someone else caught Skivvy. And there's all these people on the road and it became a big mess that you couldn't photograph. But I knew at the time, as long as it was, as long as the picture was going to be sharp, I'd got something quite special. But that proved to be um, quite a sensational shot in another way, because I think you, you and I um, have uh, spoken about this picture particularly before. Those of you who aren't reading Cyclist Magazine, read Cyclist Magazine. There's a fantastic piece that Graham um, did for us with a kind of retrospective of, of some of his, his best pictures and the stories behind them. And you mentioned that with this um, Koppenberg, uh, Koppenberg 4 with Skibby, that that ended up being something that was quite divisive in the continental media, it painted the pitch, the race in a not particularly glorious light. And you said it helped get the Koppenberg banned. Is that right? From, from the race for 15 years? Yeah. I mean, it was, I was, my, my career was going quite well at the time. And because I was the only person that got this uh, shot of Skibby falling on the Koppenberg, um, I think by 87, I was getting my film processed uh, in that, in this case in Brussels. And I'd already met a few photographers and, uh, I told them what I got, and one of them was nice enough to say, "Well, come to our our um, office straight after the race in Brussels. We'll process the film for you. You keep all the rights to it, uh, but let's just op- offer it to our picture editor." And it was a, it was across the front page of a newspaper called Het Newsblad, mm-hmm. which which was Belgium's biggest newspaper. It might not be still today. I think it is, and it's it's right across the front page. So in the aftermath of this incident. Um, I used this picture of the newspaper with my picture on it, uh, with my name on the side, in, in every meeting they had to decide what they were going to do about the future of the Copperberg, because that can never happen again. And they went through the, um, you know, the Belgian Cycling Federation had a look at it because it was their car that had, had run over uh, Skibby's uh, wheel. And it, it looked like he'd run over his foot, but it had, been, it, had been, it had gone over his wheel, which is still bad enough. So there's all these repercussions of meetings and uh, acrimony and, there was my picture being used around to, to you know, to illustrate the problem, what they were going to do about it. And on top of that, it was a photograph by a foreigner because in those days it was quite. Um, uh, it wasn't too partisan, but they were obviously the last person they thought would be selling them a picture of the race in Flanders is an English photographer. But that's that's what happened. And actually, it really did um, uh, further my career quite a bit because suddenly all the people that had previously kind of uh, pushed me to one side and. You know, ignored me or just given me a rough ride for not being Flemish or um, a Belgian. You know, suddenly they liked you. Suddenly they wanted you there. It opened a lot of doors for me. There's just that one single picture. Were you welcome? Were you welcome in the bar where Jasper Skibby uh, drank after that? Did you catch up with him? How did he feel about that image? Because it's a it's a funny one because it's it's both incredible, but I'm not sure if I'd want to be the rider in it. Yeah, I mean, Jasper's quite a, 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 a quite a modest person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't really get to know him like most sites until after he retired. And actually, he was at the 1999 Tour Down Under. And uh, I think he raced like one more year and then quit. But in, in, in Australia, in Adelaide, I had a chance to have a beer with him. And we had a bit of a laugh about the picture. And um, he never actually asked for a copy of it. But um, he, he, did, he did get a print of it eventually from me. Um, he, he didn't mind. I think he... I think he in, in 87, he was quite a young pro and he, he wanted more of himself than just falling over on the Koppenberg. Mm-hmm. He, he had great plans for himself and he, he did win a stage of, or two stages of the Tour of Spain, maybe a stage of the Tour of Italy, I think. Mm-hmm. And lots of other, um, uh, should we say, minor races, but he never made it big. Um, but I, I don't think he had any regrets of being in that picture. 
on the Koppenberg. I mean, it's it'll it'll be out there in the world of cycling until the year dot. Do you have do you have any kind of or or do those regrets on uh, a rider's behalf creep into your thinking when you're because another really iconic image well I mean there's there'll be hundreds from just from you alone of you know of riders crashing and the classic is is Museo in um in Roubaix where he blew out his knee on the Arenberg and taking an image like that is both it's that it's that classic thing isn't it the fans need to know it needs to be documented but at the same time I'm assuming there's not a lot of joy in capturing that grief um and are there times where you almost want to kind of pull back from taking a picture because you just think this is just not right or even even have you have you removed yourself from a situation that otherwise you could have documented and what would what what happens in those situations to make that happen uh well there's many there's many things that happen at the time when crash you uh back then in museum it was never a problem because it was a huge star and i was a young photographer and my ambition said don't shy away take a picture everybody else is taking pictures and he knew the role he played in in the world of cycling he knew it was part of his life and part of his fans' uh, adulation of him, um, you know, he, he, he understood. He never said a bad word. I mean, he was, you know, some of these guys are very uh, proud. Um, I mean, some are very conceited. And I think Johan actually realised it was part of his career, uh, both at the time and you know wherever it went in the future. And also looking back on it now, he it was a part of his life, and he it motivated him to win Paris Roubaix many more times. Uh, but what I found was over the years that the, the longer you become a, the longer you are a photographer, you're ine- inevitably you're going to get to know the cyclist, and that's the problem. When you know a cyclist and he's fallen over quite badly, you think oh, that's uh, that's Kim or that's uh, Adrian or that's uh, whatever uh, Phil Anderson, and you you still take a picture in just purely out of reflex, but then and then afterwards you think, oh shit, you know. But then most of them don't care. Most of them, most of them ask for a copy of it. You know, some mm. of them are really don't want to be seen crashing. Um, a few times I've had a cyclist or two actually saying to me afterwards, I know you got the shot, could you not publish it? This is the digital world now. And there was a French cyclist who fell off harmless crash in Tour Romany one year. And he saw me taking the picture, and it was a nothing picture anyway. And he said to me afterwards, he came back alongside the motorbike and he said, Please don't 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 publish that picture. I'm embarrassed, and I don't want my family to see it. So I didn't. Um, oh. And also, another, the other thing was that uh, in, in more in, in more later years, I, I'd taken up cycling. I used to be used to be a cyclist, and I took up running because you couldn't ride your bike when mm. you're travelling like like I did. And when I was not a cyclist, when I was running, I found it much easier, if you like, to to recall crashes and not feel too guilty about them because all you've done is taken a picture of something that happened. Mm. Uh, but when I went back to riding a bike again in the early 2000s, when my when my knees stopped me running, then suddenly I became much more aware, acutely aware of it hurts when you fall off your bike. And I noticeably didn't get anywhere near as many crash pictures I've got pre-2000 because mm. I just didn't feel right about it. So um, you mentioned there that you, you became friendly with cyclists because you obviously spend so much time around them especially in the, the sort of late 70s, 80s and 90s, where it was access to riders and access to, it was such, it was more of a family, whereas now it's quite sanitised, I find. When you go to a race, it's, you know, teams are in their buses, photographers are over there, written journalists are over there because it's the way sort of race organisations do it these days. 
But were there any riders that you got particularly close to in your time as a photographer? Um, I, I wouldn't say I got close to anyone during the time they were racing. Mm. Uh, it just doesn't happen. Even in the old days when cyclists did goofy things in the race because they could. <laughs> and certainly not now when, when they're robots. You know, they're, they, they've had a, all had their media training. And, mm. But I never got to know anyone really well until they retired. I mean, the, the exceptions are people like uh, Sean Yates, um, the late Paul Sherwin, mm. uh, Phil Anderson, people that you did talk to and, and they talked to you. But to say I was close um, to any of the, the more modern cyclists, no, definitely not. I mean, um, you, know, get a, you can have a great relationship with someone like, for example, Marcel Kitter. Mm. You know, um, uh, even someone like Nibali is, is extremely polite to you. But I don't think anyone really expects any close friendships to come of a, of a working relationship like that. But once they retire and you're still doing the same thing they saw you doing, then they become much more open and they actually, you actually end up in a bar one night with them in a hotel mm. um, just off by chance. And, and you, are, you suddenly realise you are friends. You suddenly realise you have shared the same workspace and that you've both kind of been a part of each other's careers and lives. But close friendships, um, no, I, I can't really, I can't honestly say, with the exception of you know two or three English speaking cyclists that, that I made really yeah. good friends. But would you be able to call out from a crowd a name and they would know it was you and would kind of yeah ultimately play up to that camera because they know your lens is trained on them? Uh, occasionally yes, occasionally yes. Except I wasn't a shout. I wasn't someone who kind of uh, I was a sort of photographer. You wouldn't. Be, I'd rather not be seen and definitely not heard. Right. So I just kind of. I was kind of a a discreet photographer who just kind of stood back and took a picture of everything going on without trying to uh, become part of the picture or without trying to push my personality into the, into it. There's plenty of photographers who do shout at their subjects, say, hey, look, look this way, look this, uh, Chris, Chris and Bradley, please. And sometimes you have to, but um, you do notice that when you're doing the podiums that they, that they tend to look down on all the photographers and they home in on someone they know quite well. So often that was me. Um, these days it would obviously be somebody else, but they, they do tend to look at you either because they want to, you to benefit by their eyes lock, locking onto your camera or they just, you're just a focus point in, in, a, in a crowd of other photographers. So if that's, that's the kind of more professional working relationship with your subjects who are also your colleagues, but then you also have genuine, well, yeah, colleagues in the kind of more typical office sense. You've got, for example, the moto pilot, the person who you're literally stuck to all day hands on shoulders turning around do you have how do you get your moto pilot or your driver how are they allotted and do you go back to the tour de france and get the same person or is it luck of the draw and of those would those be relationships that kind of carried on through the years for the most part i mean with very very few exceptions i've, I've always found i've always had to find my own my own motorbike drivers oh, okay right. race um occasionally you'll get a race like the tour down under or Tour of California, uh, where they provide a fleet of motorbikes with drivers, and you get allocated a motorbike either at the beginning of a five day race and you keep that driver for five days, or if it's a one day race, you get allocated a driver. But really, anyone with um, half, you know, like a wish to do well, you go to a race with your own driver, you know, uh, one, you, one you approve of, one you've driven with, and one that knows exactly what you want. So you you barely need to even talk to each other. He, he or she, because there have been some female drivers, he or she knows exactly what you want. 
The most mm. you need to do is a, you know, like a gentle tap on the left shoulder uh, or just a, a word to say, um, you know, museo, and he'll, he or she will take you right there straight away. Using a race, race motorbike provided with organisation is, they tend to, you know, they don't, they're not the best because they don't get paid for a while. Whereas photographers and TV pay their drivers to a top top dollar, so you get the best you get the best drivers. I see. So you, it wasn't it wouldn't be someone that you would travel from race to race with necessarily. You'd have a different person per race in in different countries. It's not like a kind of golfer uh, and their caddy. Uh, it's, it's not so far different. Um, but yeah, I would I would choose my driver to say in a geographical sense. Um, you know, I used to use a British driver called Luke Evans who lives in. Tunbridge in Kent and we did lots of races together including the Tour, the Giro and the Vuelta and all the classics and Paris-Nice uh, but by and large I, I use a Spanish driver in Spain, an Italian driver in Italy, a French driver in France you know um, and it's yeah they, they, they can only cover so much ground on a the motorbike they're going to drive so far to go to a race and not all of them not all of them are full-time drivers there they have other jobs to go to so they're giving up their holiday time to drive you but the, the requirement is you know, to be very good uh, as a driver, to know cycling, to get to know you very well, um, to be able to live with each other in, in the same room for weeks on end at a, at a three-week race. So it's, 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 there's many ingredients of a successful uh, duet. Yeah. But you definitely are a team. It's not, it's not a question of um, someone is just your driver and, you know, could you go there, could you go there. It's, you, you, mix, you mix together, you come together and, just sort of um, it is a friendship it's more of a working relationship and you get the best out of each other and you ever sort of end up running it a bit like a professional team is run where you share the spoils you get that big picture and you get that big uh, payout and then you know there's an incentive there for both of you to find it so therefore because those 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 uh, spoils are shared no it's a good that's a good question I mean I've never had um I think I think during the years of uh uh, Greg Lamond and later Lance Armstrong. Um, my my income went up enormously, mm, and right. using a Spanish driver for most of the events back in the in the mid nineties, um, and another another Spanish driver during the do I say it, the Armstrong years, and uh, you know he knew he both of them knew I was you know for once in my life making quite decent money, and so I think at the end of each season I used to give both of them a kind of a a lot of money. Um, you know, just a way of saying thank you without without being patronising either. It was just mm. a little gesture. Um, mm. Most recent thing I did was my drive in the last year in Europe was actually a Belgian. Um, we did uh, we did the Tour, the Giro, the Vuelta. We did the Tour of Abu Dhabi. We did so much together. And then as a treat, at the end of the year, I um, he came and drove me in the Abu Dhabi Tour. And we went into uh, Abu Dhabi and rented a motorbike and all that. And we flew his wife out, out for five days so she could also just have a bit of fun. Mm. And so I paid, that was my way of paying him back for the uh, that year. Graham, you mentioned uh, Greg LeMond and Lance Armstrong there, um, who are two of the icons that you shot a lot during your career. Bernard Hino as well, Marco Pantani, it comes to mind. Was there a particular rider that when you saw their name on the start list, you, uh, you looked forward to shooting because they... Sort of, I don't know. Was there a subject that always gave you the best shot, or there was a subject that you particularly enjoyed to to take photos of at all during your career? Yes, definitely. I mean, most most, most of these sighters are very good looking and very photogenic. They 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 
you want to take all of their pictures as much as often as often as you can. Um, and then special people like especially like Greg Lamont with his blue eyes and blonde hair. Mm-hmm. You know, you couldn't you couldn't you could not get enough pictures of him back in the day. <laughs> and Lance in a very different way. Um, you know, obviously I'd know which race race he was doing, but he would be one of the riders you'd you know put a little tick, tick the box next to him to look out for him every day in the race. But to be honest, there's there were so many cyclists like that in in every race you went to um, that they all kind of collectively gave you quite a thrill. Yeah, uh, you know, to go to a small race in Spain and discover you've got uh, uh, Lance Armstrong, Jan Ulrich, and Marco Pantani, and a very young Valverde on the on the start sheet. It was like a, you know, it's like it's like Christmas came early, because um, because in those races you you often see a very different sort of uh, superstar. You know, they're they're struggling, they're not quite in form, they're little a bit rough around the edges sometimes. So it was quite attractive in that way. Yeah. Did you do you remember during your career ever seeing some a young rider and being like, wow, they're they're going to be very special? Because obviously, in the eighties and nineties, it's not like today with Eurosport where today's Giro stage is going to be live coverage from the start to the finish, and it has every day. Back then, it used to be, what, an hour highlight on, on UK TV, if we were lucky. Um, so was there any riders, when they were really young, you thought, he's going to be special, and then they ended up being very big? Yeah, there, there's actually very few that I thought would become good who did become good or better than good. I mean, the majority of cyclists you uh, come into contact um, their, their name is their name has been put forward before you even saw them. Mm. You know, young Belgians. There's so many young Flemish cyclists coming up, and you'd be working with some of the teams, and they'd say, "Watch out for him. You know, he's going to be good. Watch out for Tom Bonin." And, and I'm going, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And I oh, watch out for Frank, Frank Vanderbroek. He's going to be a champion. Yeah, okay. And some of them did. Some of them yeah. did become. You, their reputation preceded them before you even got to take a picture of them. And, right. Uh, and by and large, to be honest, uh, a lot of them never lived up to the to that reputation that had been put out about them. They they, they didn't make it because it's just so hard. Mm. Um, but it's a great pleasure when you when you look back. Even now, I look back at my images sometimes, and you know, I was photographing Tom Bonin's first race as a pro, and Frank Vanderbilt's first race as a pro, and so many other guys. You know, and you you were there from literally from the very first day of their professional career to the very end of it. And that gives you a lot of satisfaction. Yeah, because I looked through some, sort of looking through your incredible archive earlier and you've got, for instance, shots from the 93 Worlds in Oslo with Armstrong becoming world champion. And as you mentioned, Tom Boone, I think it was 2002 in, at Peru Bay when he's caked in mud in his US postal kit. And it was just, and just seeing that and then knowing what they went on to do is quite incredible, really. Yeah, I mean, so, yeah it's, it's also when you think he probably had a, a 12 or 14 year career and that's mm. a long long time <laughs> you know and um you know some some have the most fantastic careers like he did others got curtailed like Vandenbroek he, he um he definitely went off the rails you know before he'd ever reached his potential which was very really sad um but yeah it's, it's nice to have seen seeing them gone through the whole you know process of their professional racing and and to come out the other end looking you know pretty healthy and hopefully with a bit of money in the bank mm. um and then you and then you get to know them of course did you ever, ever kind of, in a sense, because obviously, you know, this is almost a non-starter of a question because, of course, we all want riders to be as safe as possible, but from purely an aesthetic sense, lament the advent of not just helmets, you know, as that people wearing hairnets um, way back into the 80s and, and earlier 70s. 
but also sunglasses. That covering of the face where you don't get those immense expressions of just human kind of emotion and endeavour and pain. Yeah, it is. Um, so, yeah, what, I think what you're saying is, do I like cycling without glasses? Without <laughs> yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah. Of course I do. Of course I do, but... Um, it is it is what it is or it was it became what it was and um suddenly your helmets became the the, the law and sunglasses weren't ever the law but they'd become part of the uh, the look of a cyclist mm. and and so yeah I, I didn't like taking pictures of um I'm not, i won't say Gregory Moore or phil anderson who were the first wearers of the big oakley uh frames um but you know it's fine and you just get on with it you just adapt the, hel- the helmets was the worst thing because those early helmets, I mean, they were pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The helmets were fine. They've been there since the first world war. I mean, I think, I mean, I even, when I raced, I had a hairnet helmet on, mm. but uh, at least you could see the cyclist's head and face and all his features. But the, uh, the early helmets, um, I'm thinking of someone like Urs Zimmerman from uh, 7-Eleven <laughs> on the roller team. I mean, in the, in the mid late ages, it was, it was hideous. It was like a big lump of polystyrene without any painting on it. It was just like a big blob of you know, white polystyrene. And the same with Sean Kelly when he had to wear a helmet. I mean, he never wore a helmet. He mm. never wore glasses. And suddenly in his last year, I think, just in the last year, maybe last two years, suddenly he has this monstrosity of a, 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 a helmet on his head. <laughs> he had no choice. and I, But I hated taking his pictures. It wasn't the same. But, but uh, say la vie, it's, it's, you just move on and get on with it. And I'm, now I'm lucky to know that I, I photographed cycling back in the day when they you know, didn't wear anything on their, on their faces or on their heads. One moment where it didn't matter if people were wearing helmets, and I think it's particularly relatable to today because the Giro d'Italia, as we speak later today, will be hitting the roads of the Strada Bianca roads of Tuscany and heading to Montalcino. You were there in 2010 on stage seven, when in the Tuscan mud bath, when Cadell Evans and Alexander Vinokurov rode through what was literally just clay roads all day, caked in mud. Um, and you took an, a few iconic photos of the day. Um, would you be able to talk, or talk us through that day? Because I always think when the weather must be bad, it's bad for the riders, but it must be also bad for, for yourself too. Yeah, um, well, what made that bad, what made that day so, uh, should we say, bad? Uh, before it became good, it was just it rained all all the way from the start. I can't remember where the start was. It was a long, long stage. Well, I think it was over two hundred k along the coast, somewhere near Estezia or somewhere in that you know uh, area of Italy. And it took forever to get to the um, what, what, what something I'd never seen, which of these white roads. And you were soaked through before you even got there. So you're without getting too technical, your cameras are already quite vulnerable to the, to the rain and also, also it was quite warm so you've got the mixture of uh, a lot of water coming onto your cameras plus the condensation because it's so warm and um but once we got to the once we got to the uh what should have been white they're actually like brown even almost like a pink color yeah um and it was it's was, it was when the bad day became good as a photographer because it was um i'd never seen it and i had no idea what, what was about to happen I think I had photographed the uh, Strada Bianchi in that in those days. I'm not sure he's recalled something else, um, but I was not really aware of at all really ever doing this sort of thing. And mm. so in those days, which was 2010, the race organisations tend to because um, they're on these little narrow roads, 
and there's usually like 12 motorbike photographers. They, they choose uh, three or four of you. Um, in the pecking order we have, they choose the, the best three or four photographers and everybody else is excluded from, those, from that part of the course. In other words, when we got to the start of these, what they call the white roads, um, all the other photographers, except for these four chosen ones, had to go to the finish. And so that way, because of the speed the cyclists go at, you don't want 12 yeah. photographers' motorbikes trying to take the same pictures. So you end up um, having quite exclusive access to the, to the remainder of the stage, which was also another exciting factor. Mm. And um, so I was able to get close up to people like Cadell Evans and Banukarov and I think Stefano Garzelli. Mm. And uh, one of the most significant things was as, as the stage went on, because obviously they'd been getting pretty wet and damp and cold all day long as well. And um, you watch these guys fall apart on each little rise. If there were three or four sections of, of gravel, there are also three or four short, sharp hills with gravel on it. Mm. And you watched, uh, in particular, watched Bradley Wiggins fall to pieces. Mm. And I think he'd gone there, um, not winning, not playing to win it, but as part of his grooming to be a Tour Advance champion, he was really going for a three-week race. And he had gone there with the best intentions. I think it was the year when he won the pink jersey uh, after stage one yeah. of the Giro in Amsterdam. Mm. I think that was the year. Yeah, and the uh, so he was up for a, a really big ride in the Giro that year. And he fell to pieces on this uh, white roads uh, stage. He, he, he just absolutely, he, he got hunger knock. Uh, the head went, the legs went. And it was, it was, that was more exciting than watching Cadell Evans ride away from Penucrop. It was just seeing Bradley Wiggins, who was the, you know, definitely the up and coming uh, Grand Tour rider, just, just fall apart. Mm. It was uh, fantastic. And uh, I can't describe the detail because there's too many, but it was a, it was a really, it was a day out that you, you get every 10 years and, um, you know, just today I was looking at some of those shots um, of what happened back then 11 years ago now. And yeah. it, was, it was incredible what happened. It was just, today's stage might be in the dry, I don't know. And, and it will still be exciting even if it is, but uh, to have it in the rain, first time ever the Tour of Italy went on to those white roads, <laughs> uh, to have it pour with rain was, was literally the icing on the cake. Well, I mean, yeah, you don't hear many people say that, to have it pour with rain was the icing on the cake. But I guess, you know, that, that, that is cycling. Um, so, so within that, what other editions of you know the Giro is in full swing at the moment? What other editions of the Giro stuck out to you? Because, as you say, you know you're not just approaching this from a I'm a person that takes photographs. You're a cycling fan. You're someone that rides themselves, and you get to be that up close and personal. You see a view that no one else does. Not even really the TV cameras. So, which of which other race editions have stuck out to you, and why? I went to, I went to the 1986 Giro. I'll just ignore that. That's my first side of the Giro. Um, but I went back in 1987 because I was so excited by what I saw in 86. Mm. 87 was the year when Roach turned on his teammate, uh, Vicentini, mm. and took over the race lead and went on to win. And you know, all, the, all the fans of Vicentini were shouting him, spitting at him and throwing uh, you know, beer at him and everything else. And something I'd never seen in cycling before and I've never seen it again in the Tour of Italy. It was... Uh, Again, one of those rare experiences, but it's um, it's so far back now. Even I can't remember the specific details. Just that at the time, it was probably the most incredible thing, incredible thing I'd ever seen in cycling. Um, and it was the same year that Scooby fell off on the Kroppenberg, so it's obviously a significant uh, year. And then you speed up through. There was a long period of time when Italians won the Giro for year after year after year. Yeah, nothing really stands out as being special, but 
you come around to, to that 2010 Giro, and it wasn't just that one stage to um, Montalcino, it was many other things. Bad weather all the way uh, from, from Amsterdam down through Italy, and bad weather the day after the uh, White Road stage. And even when we got into the mountains, it was still pretty bad weather. It was a real tough, uh, brutal Giro, which, which of course gave me the best pictures. There's been some Giro since then. I, 2016 was a very nice one as well. There's a lot going on. Um, the Giro gives, gives, gives up a lot of um, images in the sense that everything's so unpredictable. Yeah. Yeah, the, the roads are atrocious. Um, some of the organisation's uh, logic is a bit hard to, to actually uh, figure out. <laughs> um, the cyclists come into the Giro, their freshest days is they haven't raced too much. Um, whereas in July, you can already see they're a little bit tired. Yeah. They come into the Giro really fresh. And that's why you also get a lot of surprises. The Giro really does throw up a lot of um, surprises from people that haven't quite got their their timing right for the Giro. They've either come in too strong, like Simon Yates a few years ago, mm. um, or they've come in undercooked. You know, and you see, so there's a real mismatch of people's um, strengths and talents. And, you know, it's just so much goes on. Every year, every year there's a great stage of the Giro, but uh, I must admit that 2010 one stands out. Um, as, as one of the best ever, and, and at least in Italy, you know, at the end of the day, that you're probably going to get a half decent plate of food and a good glass of wine. Knowing that the Trattoria is going to be staying open until eleven o'clock at night, whereas in any other race, really, especially the Tour, mm. you know, you're, you you are it comes with age. I promise you, you you become fearful for whether you're going to get whether you're going to get dinner or not. <laughs> it does affect your enjoyment of the stage, you know, when you know you're going to get fed any, you know, whatever. You, you really work a lot better and you know probably more thoroughly because you've got the time to do it. So what do you think um, was the sort of roughest experience you had in terms of not getting those dinners, staying in, you know, sleeping in a plastic bag and a hedge kind of scenarios? Which races stuck out as being like, I just am so glad to get home and get back to my own bed? Uh, I, ne- I never had that sensation of wanting to get home. I was more a question of was I wish the race would go on another week. But um, my, my, we say my, Basic days were, were done so early on in my career um, that any, anything else since. And there was a time when I started and I had no money and I was sleeping in the back of my car. And then sometimes I was camping. And when I suddenly uh, elevated myself to staying in youth hostels, it was luxury. <laughs> I literally was, you know, it's like, wow, I'm, I'm in a youth hostel. And then she said the years of Greg Mond in the early 90s, late 80s. Suddenly, you know, proper money was coming in, and I was staying in small little, you know, one-star, two-star, two-star hotels. Mm-hmm. But there was, there was never any degree of hardship compared with, you know, the early years when I would literally just sleep in a car, or, um, you know, I slept, I slept in railway stations, and yeah, some pretty, you know, quite more than ba- less than basic kind of uh, extreme situations. Um, so anything else since then has has never been anywhere near as tough. Was there a race on the calendar that you really looked forward to, though, in terms of scenery, the race always being good, and then also knowing, like we said, you can get a nice glass of wine, nice bit of food at the end of it. Was there one that in, every year that it rolled around and you're like, oh, can't wait next week, I've got X race? It changed It changed right through my career. Um, mm. The more races I did, you know, there was there were no gaps between the races, so... I remember thinking how much, how much I enjoyed the Tour Romandy 
yeah. which is a little five-day race that comes after about six weeks of one-day classical racing. And by the time you've had six weeks of classics racing, as great as it is, you've, you've almost had enough of it. Mm. And you can't wait to get to a proper stage race where everything just goes, the pace of the whole race each day, day by day, is so much more gentle. And it becomes a soap opera on wheels. And then, and then the Giro got very exciting because of these extraordinary routes they used to take. They used to take over like Zonkalan and yeah. Mortirola, which, which made me laugh that they even tried to ride up these hills, but they did. And then, but then you know, I got, I got involved with the Tour of Spain like in the mid-80s. And I think probably, you know, because of this time in the season now, uh, like at the end of the season, this great three-week race comes up. Mm. There's no pressure on me, or there was no pressure on me to get shots because the, the pictures present themselves without me even having to try. And it was just a really nice time of the year. So I think, I think as I got older in my career, I was looking not so much at the pictorial um, potential of each, each stage, but some of the niceties, the, a nice hotel, a decent dinner, and it made made the day more complete. So, in other words, my taste, my taste, or my favourite races changed through time. Yeah, even even now, I'd still probably say the Tour of Spain is my favourite. You know, three week race. Yeah. As, although I'm, although I'm, you know, pushing the merits of the Giro, the Vuelta is the one that still I still like the most. What, the weather's too unpredictable for the Giro, and it it rains too much in May in Italy. Whereas at least you know you're guaranteed sunshine in Spain. And were there colleagues that, as in, well, not colleagues, but um, uh, prof- yeah, professional colleagues in the sense of other photographers that you would expect to see and hope to see and like to see at other races? And was there kind of hanging out, the photographers hanging out in the hotel bar together? And within that, were there, did you have a kind of nemesis photographer? You know, like, yeah, the one that when you, you mentioned the, the pecking order and you get those three, four spots at crucial points in the race when you've got a dozen people vying for them. That person that, you know, is kind of throwing their sharp elbows in your way as as well as you throwing your elbows in theirs. In the beginning, I was I looked up to two or three photographers um, who probably uh, influenced my style. So one was a Dutch photographer called Cole Voss, who is still, he's still, he's still alive um, and he, he runs his agency still, but he has other people shooting for him he never goes out but he was he was my technical um uh beacon if you like he had fantastic technical skills which i really loved and there was a belgian photographer called aldo tonois who um who was a mixture of good technique but he his emotions his enthusiasm got him the best pictures um and i i kind of uh i didn't copy you don't copy someone's styles but you become you you look at their styles you you look at the magazines that they get the pictures published in or these days the websites and you you try and improve you say what can i do better and mm. and a french guy uh, from the magazine that no longer exists called M- miroir de cyclism and there was a french guy called besson and i can't remember if it was henri or marcel but he was uh bad technically but had absolutely fantastic understanding of the race mm. um but i never i was never their rivals i was i was always looking up to them and press these days, I'd like to think some people would have done the same to me. I don't really recall anyone really getting in my way. Um, equally, I never, equally, I never socialised with photographers there. Um, you know, uh, I'd much rather go out uh, either by myself or with my motorbike driver and have a quiet evening or go out with a journalist and actually, um, you know, uh, bounce ideas off each other or, or opinions or 
um, you know, I'd get gossip out of them and they'd get gossip out of me, which kind of completed the working day. But um, never, never really socialised with photographers. They're, they're, um, they're a breed unto themselves. I was, I was kind of glad to walk <laughs> each evening and find other people's company. So, so Graham, before we go, I, I, I went through your archive. I spent a long, long time looking through your website, which um, is incredible because I, I just love classic cycling photos. Um, and I've picked out three um, that I'd like you to kind of explain it, the story behind or just that moment um, of when that happened, when you saw that happen. Um, the first one, which I got, which was one of the rare ones where there's actually not a cyclist in the shot, is the picture of Tour de France director Jean-Marie Leblanc um, surrounded by the world's press as he sort of explains the Festina team were being kicked out of the 1998 tour so do you remember that moment and do you remember the sort of what must have been sort of a red hot buzz around the race knowing that something that big was happening yeah I mean, it's, it's a very good question it's a very, very interesting image um don't forget it came about a week after the rumors had started spreading in dublin mm. the festina affair was basically kicking off and um First of all, Jean-Marie Blanc was a very, very, very popular race director. He was a former journalist, former cyclist, and he was so passionate about everything about, about his races, Tour de France, Paris-Roubaix. And suddenly after however many days we've been in France, I think it was like five days, I think we were in Brive down the West Coast, uh, yeah. quite a, a French rugby town. Yeah. And basically they couldn't keep the lid on it anymore and they announced that Bestina would be thrown out of the race. And it was done in a very clever way because Jean-Marie was the, the centrepiece of this whole uh, array of officials and um, you know, UCI people who all stood behind him and in support. And, and what I noticed is when I was taking the picture was, uh, as well as listening to what Jean-Marie said, and he, was, he was almost crying, he was so upset that this was happening in, in, in the Tour de France, in France, um, a sport he loved. Uh, all about cyclists that he admired, like Berenk and uh, Brochard and people like that. Mm. And like to his side was a guy from the, the main commissaire from the UCI. The other side was the chief press officer of the Tour de France, Philippe Soud, and plus associated hangers-on and a few people who trying to get their uh, face in the picture. Mm. All their faces were sad, just absolute emotions. <laughs> you know, they, they may have all had handkerchiefs, you know, wiping their wiping their tears while they were so sad. And the audience was as sad. Uh, the audience hadn't become a, a hostile, um, you know, uh, crusade-type campaign that became a few years on. It, it was a, a similarly sad audience. Um, and this was the year of the French, uh, when the French hosted the World Football Cup in France. Yeah. So all the massive media that eventually came on the Tour of France in the following years, looking, looking for the bad stories. In that particular year, on that particular day, um, all the all the all the media who listened to what Jean Marie was saying were of a sympathetic kind. They right. were the enthusiastic media that I, I'd never known a um, I'd never known a hostile media in, in, in cycling until then. And those guys it was the last year when we had a you know what you would say a friendly uh, pro Tour de France media. Um, you know, listening to what Jean Marie Blanc was saying, and, and everybody, even if you were working, if you were taking a picture or writing or just listening, your face reflected the, the severity of the, of the moment. Wow. Um, the next one on the list, and this is one of 
my favourite shots ever actually was Andy Schleck and Alberto Contador in the fog alone on the colder tourmalet at the 2010 Tour de France. Do you remember do you remember taking that shot and do you remember watching those two duel on that mountain that day? Yeah. Um as a photographer of course I was cursing because it was foggy. And you, you it, it, the pictures do actually do turn out very well in fog, but your eyes can't see that. Yeah. You know, you're cursing because it's foggy. And there's only foggy the last 5k of the mountain, you know. Um yeah, there was a, a, lot of, a lot of emotion there. I mean, I think there's all that was the year when uh, uh, Andy Schleck had managed to uh, drop his chain and yeah. Alberto Contador just happened to attack milliseconds earlier or milliseconds later. So there's a lot of controversy. Um, I remember thinking at the time that uh, yeah, both sides were so popular, it was a shame that one of them had to lose. Mm. Um, but they are, they're very similarly matched in terms of skills, in terms of the way they race. They're both, they're both very aggressive. And there was this great showdown. It, it was sport because of the fog, because although the cameras caught the racing quite well, um, your eyes didn't think of it at the time. It looked very miserable. And you know, what a way to finish the, what was basically the penultimate stage of the Tour de France. Mm. But a lot of, lot of emotion. Uh, specifically on that day, we had the uh, French president at the time, Sarkozy, in, on the race, which means he travels with Proudhon in the red car directly in front of the race. Yeah. And, the idea being that they stay ahead of the race, slip in behind the escape of the day, and then they go ahead again to catch the finish so Sarkozy can go in his presidential tribune and be seen and be photographed. Well, on this day, the escape that they've been following was about to get caught, so they went in front of the escape before it got caught. Um, and then they were in front of Contador and Schleck in those last few kilometres before Sarkozy sped on ahead to the finish. And the story about this is that they have... Um, when Sarkozy, or when any when French president gets into Proudhon's car, uh, you have uh, suddenly these four motorcycle um, bodyguards appear mm. and they become part of the race. Um, Rumour has it they're actually gendarmes in the Tour de France, the elite gendarmes, and they um, they switch motorbikes and they switch uh, gear. They put guns on there, very visibly a gun, a handgun on each, on each, um, around each, each waist. So you're... <laughs> You're trying to photograph Contador and and um, Andy Schleck, but Sarkozy's car is only probably 10, 15 metres in front because it's foggy, because Mr. President needs to see the race. <laughs> and so you've got these four guys who probably haven't quite figured out exactly what, what this motorbike's doing with a photographer taking pictures. So you're very aware when you're taking pictures, looking back at Contador and Schleck, that just a few feet to your left or right, there's two guys on motorbikes carrying guns. And they obviously... I'm quite safe. I wasn't going to shoot anybody, but it's a very strange feeling to have this this constant presence of the uh, bodyguards on on motorbikes alongside your motorbike, mm. and when you're still trying to photograph the uh, you know the most important moment of the Tour de France. So it's, it's a rare, a rare, uh, a rare adventure. And the last one I'll, I'll pick out, and I think this is one of he's a former guest of the show actually, Greg Lamond, 1989. Uh, the moment he finds out, the moment he realises he's won the Tour de France in that iconic final time trial, and you, you've captured an image of him, arms in the air, sort of just elated. Do you remember Do you remember that happening? Do you remember him being told you've you've won the Tour de France and his reaction? Uh, yeah, because that actually, I didn't have a motorbike with me. I'd sent my, most people thought the Tour had finished. And yeah. so I sent my Parisian motorbike drive. Once he dropped me on the Champs-Élysées, 
um, actually near the finish area, I said, okay, you may as well go. Thanks very much. You know, see you again next year. And so off he went and I was basically, uh, uh, you know, uh, required to stay within that kind of kilometre of the finish area because I had no other form of transport. And um, I saw Greg and then Fignon turned into the Champs-Élysées from Place de la Concorde mm. and then legged it up to the finish where they would, eventually, they would eventually come down in about 10 minutes' time or five minutes' time. And I'd chosen to stand next to Greg for some reason because his wife was pregnant and we kind of knew each other a little bit. And, uh, you know, Greg had finished and he, was, he wasn't really mobbed because most people thought Fignon was going to, you know, clinch it. Mm. So all the, me- all the media, most of the media was waiting for Fignon. And Greg was standing there and Cathy came over to him and Greg Swanier was wiping him down. And, and then some people said, there was a whisper going in the crowd that, uh, you know, where's Fignon? He should have been here by now. Where is he? Where is he? And Greg was still a bit bewildered by it all. He just finished his time trial. And people started coming over and, uh, and Cathy says, well, what's, what's going on? And I said, well, I think Greg's won. Because Fignon, Fignon hadn't finished yet. He was, he was so slow. <laughs> and then they all started, well, the media started coming the way, and Kathy was quite pregnant. So, uh, you know, but there's one of the stages where I wasn't really interested in the pictures. I saw this mob gradually moving towards Greg. And uh, so I said to Kathy, just stand this side of me and just keep out of the way. And then Fignon did finish, and suddenly the same mob that was coming our way ran over to him because he fell on the ground crying and all that. And there was just Greg and uh, a guy who used to carry the bottle of Perrier water for the advert. You know, they used to win a stage and drink a bottle of Perrier water. <laughs> and he was nearby and and either him or someone next to me said, Greg, you've won the Tour de France. And that's when luckily I had a camera in my hand at the right time. And I stopped being a bit of a friend or a fan and got these shots of Greg and he still didn't believe it. it took like, you know, three or four yelps and you know, putting your arms up and down before eventually someone official came over and said, yes, you won. And by that time, of course, all the media had gone back to Fignon suddenly smothered us all. Mm. And I, I sort of crept away in the background and, uh, you know, didn't get, didn't get involved after that. So there we go. That was Mr. Mr. Graham Watson, the, the eyes of the peloton for four decades. The eyes. One of them shut, one of them open, one of them a big glass lens. But what eyes? What incredible eyes? It's genuinely... Think of an iconic image from the late 1970s until four years ago, and Graham was the, probably the guy who shot it. Yeah. For anyone listening, he's got a website. Uh, just type in Graham Watson Photography, uh, set aside a couple of hours, and just browse. It's. I'd take I'd take a day's annual leave. <laughs> there, there is there is such a lot there. It's just incredible. Genuinely, I had I had to really. It was a quite a, a, a challenge to get just sort of free photos to sort of get stories from because he has literally a picture of everything that's ever happened, and he and you know that and as we sort of learnt there when he was talking us through some of those stories that he has got an anecdote probably to tell you about everything, and he and he remembers it all as well. He, <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing, isn't it? Like an encyclopedic knowledge. Like I've talked to him before for some features and it's just like tell me about this picture and he'll just be like okay cool and it's you get like a yeah a 10 minute chat about a picture that he took in 1986 uh at het newsblood like 
and it's like this is this is incredible. So yeah, I mean, it's you can't you can't photograph sport unless you love it. I feel like sports sport photography, cycling is one of the the greatest sports for that because you have your scenery, you have your mountains, you have your your backdrop, and then you have your characters. So while there are some amazing football photo, football photography, it's not as dramatic as you know, it pissing down with rain on Alpe d'Huez and loads of people in colourful anoraks watching a balded Marco Pantani sort of ride away from everyone with, like, looking like a little devil man. Um, (laughs) um, And so it is very unique in that sense. James, do you have a favourite... Do you have a favourite photo from cycling? Uh, favorite photo from cycling. There's one you showed me the other day of a really skinny young. T- it's the ones that aren't actually about. I mean, they're not necessarily from the races that I really like. So it's a really skinny little whippersnapper Tom Boonen talking to Johan Museo at clearly uh, some kind of stilted function where Boon. It's like the first time Boonen's ever worn a suit, and he's got this skinhead. He looks like a right punk, and then Museo's kind of just like, uh, "Who are you?" Holding his like glass of wine and his canapé very daintily. Uh, those those kind of weird you know those those weird sorts of pictures you know riders sitting in beds holding thumbs up like Chris Froome on Twitter after he's just broke every single bone in his body that that off the bike stuff I was just looking through Graham's archives as well and there's a brilliant picture of Fignon and he mentioned it actually the guy that comes up and gives you the Perrier at the end of a race um, Fignon at this occasion had his bottles of Perrier he sat on the floor and he's got like slightly bloodied socks and he's pouring the Perrier all over his feet. And it's those, those are the pictures. And there's, there's too many for, yeah, my, my recall, unfortunately, is not like Graham Watson's, but it's that, it's those images. And that's another thing that I love about cycling. You know, there's a famous one of um, uh, Merck's head in hands after he's been told that he is ejected from the Euro d'Italia in, I don't know, 1968 or something, um, and over allegations of doping, which were never proved. And that, again, is effectively a TV crew burst. Actually, to be fair, I think that's TV footage. But the TV crew found this hotel and burst in and was like, we're going to do this. That would, I mean, that probably wouldn't happen now. It certainly wouldn't happen now. But it could have happened once upon a time in cycling. And it didn't happen like that in other sports because other sports take place in just guarded, ring-fenced arenas. And there isn't that access. And there isn't that rapport between a rider and the journalists in the same kind of way. So on my wall as a kid, I, I, until I was about 19, 20, I had quite a few cycling posters on the wall that I remember getting with a, a special Tour de France magazine. I think it was created by Cycling Weekly. And they did some sort of A4 cardboard posters. But if I was to get a print blown up and put on my wall now, it would undoubtedly be the 1999 Vuelta España when it climbed the Ongrelu. And I think it was the first time that they climbed the Ongrelu. It might be only the second time, but it rained and it was foggy and um, probably the most aesthetically pleasing rider of all time for me is Jan Ulrich, uh, mainly because for me he rode on what is arguably one of the best-looking bikes ever, which is the Pinarello Galileo. Very just, you know, classic shapes um it was pink and it was pink and silver he was riding i want to say he had lightweights in he had unmarked black carbon wheels when they were first coming on the scene 
Boris, okay. And then he had a very aggressive position. Obviously, he's in full Adidas T-Mobile kit, which I think is amongst the best kit ever created. He's got his little earring in, his hair's wet, his arm warmers are falling down, and he's coming around one of the uh, hairpins. And you can also see that he's in a triple ring. He's, he's, he's riding a triple, and he's in the smallest ring at the front, which I just thought was insane that this mammoth cyclist in Jan Ulrich was having to use a triple to get up this this mountain in northern Spain. So I think I would have that. But then if it, if it was a, a picture that wasn't of people actually cycling, it would be my other sporting hero, which is uh, Ronaldo, as in R9 Ronaldo, Brazilian O Phenomeno, where he is being gifted a bike while playing for Inter Milan by the, um, the great Mario Cipollini. Oh, lovely. And uh, Ronaldo's kind of sitting on the bike and Cipollini's like holding it as if it, he was his dad keeping him upright um, in sort of Cipollini's Seiko days. And that would probably be up there for me as well. Well, uh, that, yeah, great picture. I always, I, yeah, I know what you mean. I like those cross-curricular pictures. On that note, I uh, hope you enjoyed that that episode. We sure did. We sure did enjoy chatting to Graham. And thanks again, Graham, for coming on. As as you referred, he lives in New Zealand now. So uh, finding a time that worked for us all was, you know, challenging. But we made it happen. Uh, thanks to Lindsay, our producer, uh, who will have, I'm sure, another nightmare putting this all together. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, again, if you like this episode, if you like the podcast, make sure you like, share, leave a review. Had a few new reviews, didn't we, James? We've actually recently had our first sort of proper feedback, and we've been having questions sent in from listeners. So we should probably take the time to answer some of those on air well let's do that let's let's answer these questions let's do a mailbag dive have we got enough for a mailbag or just like a sort of envelope well if we take <laughs> if we take out the questions sent in by our respective mothers maybe not but <laughs> <laughs> but apart from that we might we, we'll have a time we'll have enough time yes but anyway um james it was good chatting to you always and we'll see you all again in two weeks time good day good evening and good night